You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Straight home, George. Straight home. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg. Grab a stool and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told and you are among friends. Author Steve Ubaney is standing by to present his best evidence that America's 32nd president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, was murdered. That's right, murdered. Now, before that, I want to thank uh, Frank Proctor for including me in the, uh, the wonderful tribute to my good friend, our good friend, George Ginescu, of course, host of Big Band Sunday Night here on Zoomer Radio. Uh, you know, I remember one of the last times I brought my boys into the studio to hang out with George. Uh, they'd be sitting next to him in studio in their pajamas and house coats and their teddy bears, and he'd share a sandwich with them. And one of the uh, the boys said to George, do you know it's my dad's birthday? And George said, yeah, how old is he? 53, they said. Big deal. I've got socks older than that. That, that was George, always anxious to take the, the mickey out of me, and I loved him for it. Uh, a quick programming note, there is no YouTube live stream tonight. We'll post the audio to the YouTube channel in a few days. No live YouTube stream tonight. So, if you're like me, you've always believed that FDR died of a sudden stroke or cerebral hemorrhage at the, uh, the Little White House in Warm Springs, Georgia, back in April of 1945. If this is the case, Steve Ubaney wants to know, why were FDR's medical records stolen and destroyed? And are we really expected to believe that he died of natural causes at the same time Allied troops were closing in on Hitler's bunker? Are we really expected to believe that Roosevelt, Hitler, and Mussolini died within 18 days by mere coincidence? We are about to discover what Steve Ubaney found deep in the archives under more than 70 years of dust. Steve Ubaney is the holder of four college degrees and has been inducted into multiple national and international honor societies. He merged his love of history with his quest for the truth, and he became the architect of the Who Murdered book series. Since the inception of the series, numerous volumes have been published as he works toward the completion of a six-volume set which is scheduled for completion in 2022. Tonight we discuss Volume 2, Who Murdered FDR, the true story they don't want you to know. 
Steve Ubaney, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you, my friend? I'm doing very well, Richard. How are you? Terrific. Why FDR? Why did you decide to dial back more than 70 years uh, and, and, and write about FDR? Well, you know what they say, to the victor go the spoils. Well, to the victor also go the lies. Uh, I never believed what I was told in high school um, about FDR and the end of the war. <clears throat> Pardon me. I thought it was a little bit too convenient. So I gave them the answer that they needed to get so I could pass the class and get my grade and this and that. But I always earmarked that moment in time in history is never making sense to me. Um, so that's what started my interest in, uh, in, in this subject. FDR is one of the, he's a very divisive uh, a character in, in history because people either absolutely adored him for, they believe, lifting them out of poverty during the Depression, uh, or they absolutely hated this man because they thought he was a, 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 an authoritarian, a, a dictator, uh, and a communist. Where do you where do you uh, fall in terms of your regard for the thirty second president? Well, you know I love him and hate him. I think that he was he helped a lot of people in a time when people really needed help. Uh, he was an excellent communicator, and of course the communication channel of the day was radio. So he was he was a very warm person uh, in everyone's living room giving them messages of hope and encouragement that things would get better. And of course. He, he subscribed to the Marxist theory that um, academia and government could cure all of the ills of mankind. And, you know, of course, now we know that it takes more, <laughs> takes a little bit more than, than that um, to cure all the ills of mankind. But he helped a lot of people. He was a good guy. His, um, the economy, the New Deal that he put in place was, uh, was basically a communist Marxist doctrine or a takeoff thereof. Um, putting everyone to work for the taxpayer, and um, it were it had never been done before. I mean, this was landmark. This was huge, and because it had never been done before, they really didn't know how it was going to work. So, um, I think he was a great communicator. I think he was a very beloved person. I think uh, history shows that you know his economic strategy was a nightmare, um, but I also think he was probably the best war president we've ever had. Now, before you sort of paint the picture of him uh, as essentially a, a communist, or certainly very sympathetic to uh, to communists, the you spend some time depicting his struggles, obviously, with with polio, and and um, really he is a very sympathetic and likable figure. Although early on, sort of you know, born with a certainly a, a silver spoon in his mouth had zero relatability to the man, the average man in the street because of his, his upbringing and his wealth. Let's just spend a little bit of time talking about uh, Franklin as a young man uh, growing up in a very sheltered, privileged life, obviously, in, in New York. Well, Franklin Roosevelt, if you ever get a chance to go to Hyde Park and visit the Roosevelt Mansion, which houses the National Archives, which I spent an enormous amount of time doing the research for this book, if you ever have a chance to do that, you know, do the tour of the museum, do it. Um, you'll get a very good idea of what the, this person was like um, and what he, what it must have been like being a child on those lush grounds in, in the Hudson Valley. Um, he was an only child. 
he, and he told me if he possibly could have wanted, he could have gotten, you know, just by, just for the asking. Um, Roosevelt's were old money. And when I say old money, I mean that they were worth multiple millions of dollars at a time in America when people didn't have anything. I mean, they were probably more wealthy than anyone who was ever wealthy in the country at the time. Second, probably only to the Vanderbilts, who was just down the road a quarter of a mile from their mansion. They had the, road, the Vanderbilt mansion. So we're dealing with some, some heavy hitters back in the day. Um, had very little to do with the common man. Why? Because he had no exposure to the common man. He was, he was a very wealthy, very sheltered, very spoiled little guy who, you know, basically got everything that he wanted. Um, that all changed when he ended up contracting polio, and all, basically all he could do was um, blink. I mean, he, he had no use of his arms or his legs, and, and then the very idea that he had the second lease on life was incredible. Um, you know, just when you think you read something about Franklin Roosevelt that you're not going to like, you read about um, how he persevered and won back the use of his arms and uh, fought his way back from a disease that was uh, kind of tough. This was a very determined person. So, you know, he, he brings himself back, starts with the use of his arms, um, and you know, he has bars installed over his bed so he can do chin-ups and work on the strength of his arms and has parallel bars installed in the front yard of his house so he could continue to exercise his, his uh, arms and work their, their way back from this infantile paralysis or polio. And he tries to do the same thing with his legs. And he walked a couple of miles every day. Um, and what he called walking was using braces with his arms and dragging his legs behind him with 12-pound steel braces on each leg. And he walked to about five and back every day, sometimes multiple times a day, trying to get those legs to work. And, of course, he was unsuccessful. Uh, that was the earmark and the change in his life when he went from being um, a spoiled brat to starting to seek cures for his legs and meet other people in need. So this was a transformation point in, the, in this person's life. And his his path to the, the White House, we're coming up on a break, we'll begin that conversation now and pick it up on the other side. Um, for, for many presidents, the path to the White House has been governor of New York. His, his, his cousin, um, Teddy Roosevelt, governor of New York, other uh, presidents have gone that route. But at that time, I mean, New York was Republican. His, his, uh, his cousin was a Republican. How did that? How did he become governor of New York? I mean, obviously, name recognition had a huge uh, amount to do with it. But to, to battle the Republican machine in in, in uh, New York, and his and his cousin must not have been too pleased either. It wasn't easy for him, and it was just again, it's just uh, due to that um, enormous will and ego and the determination this person had to use that to use that last name successfully. Um, in order to garner power with the other side of the family, he married his cousin. Eleanor Roosevelt was born to Roosevelt, married to Roosevelt, died to Roosevelt. He married his cousin, <laughs> Eleanor Roosevelt. Um, and even the tour guide at the, at the uh, Franklin Roosevelt Museum 
thought that it was to garner favor with the Republican side of the family because he was on um, the uh, the governor, governor run. Um, so very interesting stuff that Franklin knows about. And we're just starting to, this is just the tip of the iceberg. All right, Steve, hold on. We'll take a timeout, come back, and continue to delve into who murdered FDR. The true story they don't want you to know. Steve Ubaney, my guest, right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Steve Ubaney, my guest. Who murdered FDR? The true story they don't want you to know. And Steve is with us for the full two hours. We will open up the phone lines in hour two. Uh, so don't call in just yet. Just sit, listen, enjoy, and uh, likely learn a thing or two about uh, the, rem- the remarkable uh, life of the 32nd president of the United States. And, of course, where this is all heading is April 12, 1945, when, well, most of us firmly believed and were taught that he died of a cerebral hemorrhage at the age of 63. Why not? He was sickly. Uh, but we'll get around to that. Right now, what else was interesting was, and you document this in the book, how the illusion was created that he was a fit, you know, virile man um, while his legs were in an incredibly atrophied condition. Uh, part of this were the, these sturdy steel braces that he wore on his legs so that he could stand erect for hours. But also the media played a big part in helping prop him up, literally and figuratively. Talk to me about that. Yeah, he had struck a, a deal with uh, with the media that he was not he was not to be shown getting in or out of an automobile. And there's, there's even there's even video footage that exists right now of the Secret Service telling the people, "Okay, shut your cameras off." You know, they were cooperating with this person um, to cloak the fact that he was quote unquote walking clutching one person's arm on one side with 12-pound weights on each foot and walking with a cane. He was really doing no such thing, but he had practiced it to the point where he gave the illusion that he was walking. And he had to do this for a couple of reasons. Um, You know, back then, they thought, incorrectly, by the way, they thought that if people had some sort of a, a physical ailment or physical disability, that they couldn't possibly be mentally stable. So he thought that that had to be ruled in in order for him to uh, further his political career. So that's basically how that happened. It actually went to the point where he paid an insurance company, and this is covered in my book as well, he paid an insurance company to, um, to, reinf- to insure his health and attest to the fact that how healthy he was and, and this and that. It was at a $500,000 policy that they issued on his, his health. And of course, it was nothing more than a political stunt picked up by the local newspapers to, uh, you know, to get him to uh, further his, his career. Because at that point in time, you know, his, uh, his career was over. 
You, you also point out here that in the 20s, news photographers actually voluntarily destroyed their own plates if they showed Roosevelt in poses that revealed his handicap. They didn't have to be, they didn't have to be told to do that. They did it voluntarily. I think that back then there was, it was a lot different than today, that's for sure. I think that, uh, I think that back then there was a little more dignity to the press, and they really didn't have any vested interest in uh, cutting the knees out from someone, so to speak. I think that it was just an unwritten rule that they didn't, they didn't take advantage of someone's disability or they didn't put anyone in a bad light. So I think that, uh, I know that in some cases they were, they were paid in other places, other uh, other areas, they did it voluntarily. So when he came to power in, well, the election of 1932 and was uh, sworn in in 1933, uh, let's just talk about what was happening at that time in the United States. The, the, the decades prior, even, communists had infiltrated the government, most of the labor unions, um, influencing most of America's social reformers. So this is sort of the backdrop of when Roosevelt comes to power. Communists had already infiltrated virtually all aspects of, of, of the American government, correct? That's absolutely correct. And, you know, we have to say this, and I know a lot of people are going to have their jaws open because, you know, we're saying, we're throwing this word communism about, you know, the communism back then, they didn't know anything about evil empires or anything bad or any connotation that was terrible with communism. It was proposed as the next big thing. Uh, it was going to stop the pitfalls of capitalism, and it was a cradle-to-grave society where everyone would be cared for. That's all they knew. Okay, but how this happened was um, at the end of the war. You know, Kevin Coolidge had a great economy going, and of course, he uh, his term ended, and Herbert Hoover started fiddling with the knobs and levers of everything. Ended in the Roaring Twenties, and here we are in a in a capitalist bust. So Stalin, in all of his wisdom, and he was awfully sharp, um, extended invitations to news media, um, those in academia, those in arts and entertainment, some people in Hollywood, to come to the Soviet Union and view this new great system of government that they had found. And they came over, and they were taken to, uh, by, by uh, Stalin's police, they were even guided tours to what they call Potamkin villages. Potamkin villages basically are facades, phony villages that didn't function. And they were shown um, how this cradle-to-grave society were high taxes and everyone was cared for and, you know, uh, how everyone was fed, how pristine the cities were and everything worked. And they were sent back to the States with uh, packets of propaganda as to how they could transform America from the capitalist issue that was going on to the new communist uh, ideology where everyone was going to be cared for. So out of this, in 1919, started the um, uh, Communist Party, the CPUSA, the Communist Party of the United States of America, which is still in existence, actually, in New York City. And uh, if you go to their website, their website the platform, the political platform, greatly mirrors that of the Democrats in today's world. Back then, it was sponsored by Stalin through his operatives and people who visited Russia to overthrow the government. So, very interesting how it had its start. 
Um, this started basically with the elite um, self-proclaimed uh, proclaimed academia, other academia that were legitimate, and of course, Franklin Roosevelt was in the vanguard of these people. So he comes to Washington with these ideas, and he starts the New Deal, which is basically a cradle-to-grave society, where if you ate, if you slept, if you used a utility, it's because the government allowed it. So this was the backbone of the Communist Party in that era. And uh, it's it's amazing how history mirrors, um, you know, today we have, um, you know, um, these accusations of Russian collusion with Trump. Uh, and yet, back then, 70 years ago, I mean, it was real. It was, it was going, there literally was a communist hiding under every bed. Uh, I mean, Senator McCarthy was, uh, you know, he was um, certainly a bull in a china shop and a nasty, a nasty man. Perhaps the problem was he didn't realize how right he was. Well, this is exactly right. And it's interesting how history plays games with you. Okay. Um, here we have 75 years later, we have another uh, New Yorker, another president, another polarizing figure, love him or hate him. And they like the FBR, love him or hate him, because people did both. Um, one, it was, one, it was a liberal. This one is a Republican, or I don't know if you can call him a conservative, but go ahead. Uh, <laughs> The only difference, and one was one was actually there were so many communists and Russians around Roosevelt, it was absolutely incredible. I mean, the laundry list—they were in—they had infiltrated every every part of government. Today's world, just the hint of the Russians being involved in government or an election is creating two years now of um, of investigation. So it's interesting. History is kind of repeating itself, but you know, kind of not. Uh, it's a little bit different, but it can tend to be a little more of the same. Um, it, it's amazing how you know, I mean, the White House communists around Roosevelt had infiltrated. Uh, <laughs> um, there were 15 high-ranking officials, starting from Harry Dexter White to Ward Pigman to Elder Hist, and they had they were in every single part of our government, from the Agricultural Adjustment Administration to the Attorney General's Office to the Department of State. National Labor Relations Board, the Labor Advisory Board, the War Production Board, the Price Administration, the U.S. Treasury Department. The U.S. Treasury Department had been infiltrated by communists, <laughs> or the belief. And finally, the Public Welfare Committee. So we we were just being, if they had fur hats on, they would have been awfully, awfully easy to spot. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, back in, back in those days, you know, they thought communism was a great thing. Even Eleanor Roosevelt. And I went to the uh, Roosevelt Museum. She has a three-drawer filing cabinet. She was under investigation for being a communist. And it's right in the middle of the museum. If you go to my book, there's, um, there's, there are files that I show in my book of FDR and communism and how friendly he was with this ideology. So in my book, when I say that FDR was a communist, it's not that way because I say it that way. It's that way because that's the way the research stuff. Right, right. There was also a mutual admiration society going on between Roosevelt and Mussolini. People don't maybe realize that Mussolini was a communist and wrote for a, a communist magazine and newspaper uh, and, and was very enamored of Roosevelt's progressive policies. And, and likewise, Roosevelt 
sent a delegation to Italy. This was obviously before the, the outbreak of the war uh, to, to study Mussolini's policies because they were so progressive, quote, end quote. Uh, so you have that going on. But how did Roosevelt, um, how did he uh, garner such broad executive power? How, how, how did that happen? Well, you're dealing with a man who is very mentally dynamic. He could get just about anything in government that he wanted because, number one, he had a great persuasive way with the people, and he could do something, and he could convince the people that what he was doing was in their best interest. If it was or not, most times he probably felt that it was. There were a few times where he obviously knew that it wasn't. So he could sell that, whatever he wanted to do, very well, which gained him... um, which gained him, you know, incredible, incredible power in uh, in government. And hey, let's face it, you know, I mean, you know, people tend to like free things, and you vote the guy back in who's giving you free things. So this is kind of the way this happened. You know, long about the time the New Deal had started to play itself out, the economy was coming back, not at all like they had thought. So he had proposed a second New Deal, and. It, didn't go over very well. And they had determined, the court at the time, the Supreme Court had determined that significant portions of the, of the second New Deal were unconstitutional. So FDR and his power tried to change the balance of the court to get this through and add more judges to the court to get his second New Deal through, also known as packing the court. So he was a guy who was um, extremely sharp, very shrewd, steps ahead of people, and tell it to the public. And yet, when the United States wasn't at war, he, um, the Congress drew up this Trading with the Enemy Act and to, to give him the power that he, he needed. How did that, how does that happen? How do you have a Trading with the Enemy Act at a time of peace? I'm sorry, Richard, you broke up a little bit. Can you repeat that? Well, it's just curious that, that uh, to get to grant him these powers, Congress enacted this Trading with the Enemy Act, and this was at a time when the United States was at peace. He could get just about anything that he wanted. Trading with the Enemy Act, or TIWA, started under Woodrow Wilson in 1917, along with the Sedition Act. Um, you know, TIWA was basically, well, the Trading with the Enemy Act, and... There were certain times where, for example, in 1933, um, he did the Emergency Banking Relief Act, and he would go after people who were hoarding gold. So he started an executive order to gather the gold back. In order to do that, he had to make it possible for the American public to be enemies, legally to make that work. It's really interesting how this happened. And the Sedition Act of 1918 um, started in the Woodrow Wilson. <laughs> anything that, um, you know, any speech or uh, any abusive language or anything against the government was, uh, you know, would be an offense. And, you know, you can go to jail for it. Very interesting how we've evolved as a, how we've evolved as, as, we've evolved as a country. Uh, or is now, I mean, they can just do just about anything they want, vote or not, and shove it in your face, and there's nothing anybody's doing about it. When you so. look at the, the list, the laundry list of New Deal legislation, uh, Emergency Banking Act, Government Economy Act, Beer Wine Revenue Act, Creation of Civilian Conservation Corps, Abandonment of Gold Standard, 
Federal Emergency Relief Act, Tennessee Valley Authority Act, Securities Act, abrogation of gold payment clause, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I mean, you make the point here that it, essentially he gave himself the kind of power that Joseph Stalin would probably have been envious of. Well, the mutual admiration society between FDR and Joseph Stalin <clears throat> is one that no one can overemphasize. Um, he just loved everything about Joseph Stalin. He called him Uncle Joe. And when World War II came around, um, they were very, very leery of Joseph Stalin because they knew he was a he was a monster. But they started to realize the enemy of my enemy has to be my friend. So he admired Joseph Stalin. He admired his policies. He admired his rule. He was a little leery of him because he didn't understand him. And he was right to be leery about him because Stalin is the one that murdered him. Well, we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves here. But um, at this time, um, he's also making a lot of enemies at home, particularly with a lot of these New Deal era tax increases. Um, just talk to me a little bit about uh, the, the sorts of individuals, companies that were perhaps most most hurt by Roosevelt's New Deal and, and who these new enemies were. Well, again, I don't believe that because the New Deal legislation and the taxes that accompanied it had never happened before. Um, he had no idea that when he was giving to the poor, he was crushing the rich. And the poor has to work somewhere. So, you know, when you're crushing the companies to employ the people, you tend to self-perpetuate yourself in the New Deal. But um, to answer your question, some of the people who he was just, who just absolutely hated him because he was um, he was just crushing their companies were DuPont, DuPont Chemical, Eastman Kodak, uh, Harvey Firestone, Samuel Colgate, the toothpaste company, Henry Ford, um, Carnegie Steel, the Heinz family, uh, the Mellon family, who, who was in the banking the banking arena. Um, they just uh, <laughs> the Coca Cola company. I mean, he was just crushing these companies with this legislation. And it was just red tape after red tape after red tape to the point where no one could hire anyone. So not only was, and I don't believe he did this on purpose, and scholars have thought, have argued about this. They fought over this. Was he doing this to perpetuate his presidency because there were no term limits at the time? Did he know ahead of time that he was going to be be elected and reelected and reelected because he was getting people addicted to their to his handouts. Personally, I don't believe that. I think this had never been done before, and the fact that um, he was crushing these companies was just, you know, ignorance of what was going on with the economy. Stephen, I got to jump in here. We'll take a timeout. Come back. We'll talk about FDR and the United States enters the war. Back with more of my conversation with Steve Ubaney, author of Who Murdered FDR. Stay with us. It is time to redefine reality. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM 740. There is nothing concealed that won't be revealed. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. 
Welcome back. Steve Ubaney is with us. Who murdered FDR? The true story they don't want you to know. Uh, Roosevelt had campaigned uh, and won you know, based on his promise to keep the United States out of the war. But that changed, obviously, in December of 1941. Uh, what changed? I mean, we know about Pearl Harbor, but, but there was something that happened before that, that, that drilled home the point to Roosevelt. He knew he had to get the United States into that war and fast. Explain what happened. Well, a couple of things happened. As I said, <clears throat> pardon me, he started to realize that the New Deals were not going to work on their own. And he knew that we needed the uh, the influx of, of industry to pull us out of the war. That was the first thing. Out of happened. the Depression, you mean? Thing. Out of the Depression. I'm sorry. Yeah, right. did I misspeak? Sorry. That's all right. Um, yeah. So the second thing that happened was uh, you know, <laughs> Roosevelt had to have that war happen for economic purposes. And he also had to have the war happen because we had spies in Germany who were in close. We all had spies, guys. I mean, let's be real. I mean, we had spies. Every country is spying on every country. So the United States has spies, too. I'm sorry to break anybody's normalcy bias, but we do, okay? So back then, our spies were in Germany, and they were in tight. And they were no, they were, they were starting to trickle information back to Washington that the, the Nazis were very close to finishing their heavy water experiments. And that's the beginning of nuclear weaponry. And with their V-2 rockets and Werner von Braun, they had the technology to carry those nuclear weapons to all points of the globe. We needed to get in the war, and we needed to get in this war fast. So he had to sell this to the American people, because prior to this point, he'd been saying that this was Europe's war. This was Europe's war. We're not doing anything with it. It's their war. So, Aside from granting we, huge loans to, 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 uh, to Great Britain. Oh yes, we were doing we were doing lend lease with Great Britain, and uh, you know we're doing all kinds of things to try and uh, to try and prop up Great Britain, who was almost was on the brink of, of losing their island. Um, in my book, I have a I have a 97 year old aunt who was actually in that in the bombings, 52 nights of being bombed by uh, by Hitler, and she she says right it's a it's, a, it's an interesting interview in my book with her. She said, you have absolutely no idea how close they came to losing your island. They thought, they being the Germans, that they were just going to bomb them night after night after night, and they were just going to give up, just like, you know, what had happened in France, because he basically rolled over France. And he said that the Germans were lined up on the opposite side of the English Channel, just waiting to come over and take the island and they came, they came really close to losing the island. So if it wasn't for us helping Churchill and the Brits, they would have lost their island. So uh, we needed to get into the war, and we had broken the Japanese codes for long before Pearl Harbor happened. So documents have now been revealed through History.com. FDR definitely knew that um, Pearl Harbor was going to be hit. So... Um, he was also trying to goad the Japanese into war. The J Japan is an oil debtor nation, which means that they don't create or make enough oil or produce enough oil to support their endeavors. So they were getting their oil from us in the 1940s. So Roosevelt turned off their spigot. There's no more oil for them. That forced them to go island hopping to get more oil. 
So they were trying to negotiate with us and trying to negotiate with us. The Japanese didn't want to go to war with us. They had just exited a horrific war with the, with China. The last thing they wanted was to go to war with the United States. Um, so they were trying to negotiate. FDR was ignoring them. Political change happened. They became a warring empire, and they decided to go island hopping. So FDR basically made that war happen. He needed to make that war happen because he needed to get us into World War II quickly. So, so you're, you're, so, the, you make the argument that Roosevelt knew uh, about the attack on Pearl Harbor before it happened. That was necessary in order uh, it, to sacrifice thousands of U.S. servicemen and civilians in order to galvanize public support for the United States getting into the war. That's absolutely right. And... The history history dot com has come up with documents that uh, that I didn't find, which I'm embarrassed I didn't find. But he found that they found top top secret documents and published them here just a little bit after my book was published to solidify that very fact. Um, we needed to get into the war. We needed to get into it fast. So shortly before they hit Pearl Harbor, uh, the aircraft carriers were pulled out. So they would not be harmed because they were going to be important to the rest of the war. Right at that so, point, battle. Yeah, the aircraft carriers were crucial to winning uh, the war. Battleships, not so much. And you know, he needed to. Yes, absolutely. And you know, he needed to. Uh, he needed to sell the war to the American public, and it took something horrific like Pearl Harbor to in which to do so. It is curious that there were no aircraft carriers. Uh, in Pearl Harbor at the time. I guess Admiral King had ordered them out just in time. So that does sound very suspicious. So, I mean, um, uh, what a decision that... And you don't fault him for this. I mean, having to make that decision, it would have been like Lincoln during the Civil War. Uh, No other president would have had to have gone through something like that. He had to accept the fate that thousands of servicemen would be killed in order to prevent perhaps the, the wholesale slaughter of tens of millions because the Germans were so close to getting the bomb. All right. We'll I'm, take a, sure, sorry. I'm sure that he must have agonized over it because Franklin Roosevelt was not a bad man. You know, he, he, you know, you have to, when you're in that leadership role, and hey, how do we know what any other president's done in history? You know, we really don't. This just happens to be what we found. I'm sure there's other examples that are even far worse in history. But, you know, Franklin Roosevelt had to realize that we needed to take this punch in the eye. Um, and I'm sure he agonized over it. I'm sure it was I'm sure it was an awful decision for him. But um, unfortunately, leaders have to make those decisions, you know, from time to time. All right, Stephen, stay put. We'll come back and uh, continue to discuss who murdered FDR right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The world is being pulled over your eyes. 
This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. To reach Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Steve Ubaney is with us for the full two hours and we will uh, take calls, questions, comments after the top of the, uh, the hour. Who Murdered FDR? This is Volume 2 in his Who Murdered book series. Uh, Who Murdered FDR? The true story they don't want you to know. Uh, So, the United States enters the war. Uh, How did Roosevelt and Churchill get on, knowing that, or was Churchill aware that that, uh, Roosevelt was an admirer of Stalin? Did that cause any friction? Roosevelt and Churchill had a great, um, had a great working relationship. Uh, the two, the two liked each other. They worked well together. They trusted each other. Um, Churchill hated Stalin. Had to meet with him. Couldn't stand him. Uh, and I think that it may have bothered Churchill how friendly FDR was with his ideology, because, to my knowledge. Churchill didn't, didn't describe to them. But I don't think it was any sort of uh, lasting animosity or any animosity. I think it was, you know, the enemy of my enemy needs to be my friend. And I think that they were able at that moment in time to save humanity, put it behind them. And did Roosevelt and, and Churchill, uh, did they butt heads on how to handle Stalin? Uh did they did they talk about you know looking forward to these obviously these summits that they had uh, in Tehran and so forth? Uh, well, they both knew that he was a temporary ally, and you know they they were a little leery about him because you know we know now about the Great Purge, we know now about all of these things, but I don't think that they they may have known, but I don't surely <laughs> they. Um, they didn't know that, uh, you know, Stalin had murdered, you know, a million people on a whim in his own country for something to do with show trials. I think that they were leery of some of the rumors they had heard, but I don't think that they knew that. Um, I don't think that really came out, into, again, to the victory go the spoils. I don't think that that actually came out uh, until until after the war. So um, they were worried about getting um, getting in bed with him for the war. But um, they were more worried about... They knew that, that uh, Stalin had his eye on the post-war world, and that's what concerned them. So they had to handle him with kid gloves. In the meantime, uh, Hitler is sending over assassination teams to the United States. I wasn't aware of this until I read your book. How many assassins uh, were, were trying, to track, uh, trying to track Roosevelt down? Talk to me about these, these, uh, these spy rings that were out for, for FDR. You know, Richard, I'm sorry you're breaking up. Can you Just, I, I wanted to, I didn't know about all of these assassination teams that Hitler had unleashed in the United States to go after FDR. Talk to me a little bit about oh. that. You know, well, the Decane spy ring had 33 members. It was the largest uh, spy network in American history. And their mission, overall mission, was to assassinate high-level uh, operatives um, and high-level government officials and to sabotage our government. So... That was, uh, you know, that was started by by Hitler, and then of course Operation Pastorius also was uh, was uh, um, started by Hitler. It had eight members, 
and it was created after Pearl Harbor, and it attacked Sicilian targets and heads of state. And, uh, all of them, I believe, got the electric chair. <laughs> I mean, I was fortunate enough that they were able to uh, support their efforts, but, I mean, they had, they were, <laughs> these, these uh, people, you know, these two sides were trying to assassinate and poison each other back and forth throughout the war. Um, Hitler had at least 42 attempts on his life from 1933 to 1944, and including, um, there was even uh, one of his high-ranking generals, the Desert Fox, Erwin Rommel, was caught trying to start a coup from inside Germany to overthrow the Fuhrer. And um, he was uh, he was forced to take cyanide on, on uh, July, July 20th, 1944. So, I mean, this is... <laughs> They, they had squads out to out to hit each other. As a matter of fact, in my book, there's a um, <laughs> right on a Maxwell Smart. There's a there's a, a photo of a top secret document from the, the um, Royal Air Force, I believe. They had tried to murder um, uh, Winston Churchill with an exploding chocolate bar. The Nazi bomb makers had figured out how to get a chocolate bar, a, a bomb to look like a chocolate bar, to get it in on the tray into the war room and get it in front of Churchill so when he unwrapped it, it would blow his head off. So these guys had been going back and forth and back and forth trying to knock the other one off, the opposition leaders off, by any means necessary. A couple times, um, Operation Long Jump happened, but they were trying to make a Tarankan where uh, Hitler had a squad that was supposed to assassinate all three of them. And, of course, just, just in the nick of time, they were, you know, they, had, they, were, they were caught because it almost worked. Uh, Hitler almost got all three of them at the Tehran Conference. Was it during the Tehran Conference that, in 1943, I believe, that, that we first start, or it was first noticed that Roosevelt started to look gaunt and sickly as early as 43? It was, and it was, it was in November of 1943, and that's when, you know, he's still a healthy man, and again, the pictures are all in my book, what he looked like at Tehran in 1943 and what he looked like at Yalta in 1945 was drastically different. Um, in 1943, at the Tehran Conference, uh, he started to have very strange health swings, uh, problems with his health. You know, they were served uh, steak and potato dinner, and he got so violently ill, he turned green and started to sweat and started to vomit. They actually had to, one of his um, his right-hand man, Harry Hopkins, who went everywhere with him, um, had to actually remove him from the room. It became so bad. It was then that crazy things started to happen. On the way back from the Tehran Conference, um, one of FDR's top generals, Major General Pa Watson, died of a cerebral hemorrhage, and they figured that he was poisoned. Um, FDR's um, personal secretary, McIntyre, no, no relation to Dr. McIntyre, he also died of a cerebral hemorrhage. So what we have now is we have people within the White House starting to play games and assassinate people with a poisoning it is creating cerebral hemorrhage. And around this time, his mental health, also um, on the wane, his mental capacity 
is waning. Uh, couldn't have happened at a worse time, obviously, because as 1944 moves into 1945, uh, the Allied leaders, Stalin, Churchill, and, and Roosevelt, are basically divvying up the spoils and, and looking at what the post-war world will look like. So what a horrible time for, for Roosevelt to essentially be in a fog. Well, it was planned out perfectly. I mean, if Roosevelt just suddenly showed up dead, it would make a little. It would look a little suspicious. So he was being slowly poisoned from within the White House uh, by a poison that they they didn't know. They knew in Europe and the other countries, but we were behind a little bit. You know, there was a poisoning that was a, a common item that we had no idea was going to poison someone like this, and this is what started his demise. Because if you look at, you know. I had always thought all through school, I was been, I had been told that uh, it was just the advance of his polio and so forth, and that's what happened to him and so forth. And it's completely untrue. The advance of polio does not the, the symptoms of the advance of polio does not align with Dr. Leahy's assessment of the man on um, July tenth of nineteen forty four. Those are doctors. Dr. McIntyre, Dr. Bruin, Dr. Pollan became so baffled why he was getting so sick at meal times, and his body wasn't responding to any medication. His blood pressure was spiraling out of control, and it would come back to normal. And then it would go to 310 over 195, and it would come back to normal. So they took this, this ailing person to um, Dr. Frank Leahy, who was the the doctor of the day. He was the founder of the Leahy Clinic in Boston. And they basically said, what's wrong with this guy? We don't have a clue. Here's all of our information. We need help. So Frank Leahy um, looked at this man and determined, and of course, History.com in 2011 released Dr. Leahy's findings. And um, you can see him if you want to go online and look at him. Uh, this is what I started when I when I saw this. I started to realize that there was more going on here. My suspicions were right all along about how Roosevelt actually died. Um, Roosevelt's actual symptoms. Well, I won't bother you with a laundry list, but I'll give you a synopsis here. Uh, he was having cardiovascular disease. He was having intellectual and mental problems. He was having sensory motor sensory motor problems, gastrointestinal problems, and his nervous system was a wreck. He had skeletal problems. He was turning colors. His kidneys were failing. None of that is the advance of polio. It's the advance of poisoning. Every time FDR left the White House and went to Warm Springs, Georgia, or another location, he started to start. He started to feel better. He goes back to the White House. Bam! The symptoms happen again. So uh, every now and then, in your research, and boy, did I do research! You get lucky. And um, I found Margaret Suckley, Daisy Suckley, was one of, uh, one of FDR's um, cousins, one of his favorite cousins. And she had published a diary entitled Closest Companion. And um, her quote here on page 203 is pretty telling. Um, she said, that it's a president's fourth day in bed, and he still feels somewhat miserable. This is a quote. Although his fever is gone, last Tuesday, without any warning, he fell, fell ill at noon also known as lunchtime, when people eat. He lay in the study in the sofa until 4.30 p.m., when he found he had a temperature of 102. Get this. 
Dr. McIntyre found it was a toxic poisoning, but they couldn't ascribe anything to it. Hmm. Right there, they know he's being poisoned from within the White House. And what they were doing was they were treating him with sulfur drugs. But they still couldn't detect the poisoning. So FDR was being slowly poisoned from within the White House, from communist plants. So when it came time to divvy up the world, he would be out of the way, and no one would be none the wiser. So as a matter of fact, when he dies at Warm Springs, Georgia, on April 12, 1945, he dies in the presence of two Russian spies. We Very will get, interesting book. Right. <laughs> we, will get, we will get to, the, to that uh, after the, uh, the top of the hour, when we'll open up the phone lines and take questions and comments for Stephen Ubaney, researcher, author, Who Murdered FDR? The True Story They Don't Want You to Know. Back with more in a moment. Let me give you the numbers. 416-360-0740 in the GTA. 416-360-0740. And toll free from just about anywhere. 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home. Long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed rec room with the wood paneling and the air hockey table, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. A big howdy to everyone listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio, here in Toronto. 740 megahertz on the amplitude modulation band and 96.7 on the FM dial. Hi to all of you catching The Conspiracy Show on one of our affiliate stations across North America. Those, of course, who listen and watch on the Conspiracy Show YouTube channel. If you haven't already done so, please check it out and hit that red subscription button. Uh, And the Conspiracy Show app, of course. Those listening on the Conspiracy Show app and the Zoomer Radio app, both free downloads wherever. And however you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you for your fine company. Steve Ubaney stays with us this hour. The author, Who Murdered FDR? The True Story They Don't Want You to Know. This is Volume 2 in his Who Murdered book series. Uh, Before we get back to Steve, just a reminder, no live YouTube stream tonight. Uh, And if you can't wait a whole week before the next Conspiracy Show, you need to check out my podcast, Conspiracy Unlimited. New episodes drop every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Listen and subscribe at conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and uh, while you're at it check out the website strangeplanet.ca strangeplanet.ca we've given it an overhaul a fresh coat of paint and it's uh, far more easy it's far easier uh, to navigate and uh, far more mobile friendly as well all right uh, before the break we were talking with Steve Ubaney uh, about FDR and how he was slowly being poisoned uh, from within the White House. Now, I want to talk about 
uh, certain individuals surrounding uh, FDR. And uh, I want to talk about his mistresses. He had a number of them, uh, including uh, a Lucy Mercer, uh, who uh, Eleanor Roosevelt found out about. And she basically gave the president an ultimatum. What was that ultimatum? Lucy Mercer was the social secretary to Eleanor Roosevelt, and she had a 30-year affair with FDR. And um, actually, one of FDR's daughters had arranged um, meetings for Lucy and FDR. So um, here's um, cousin Eleanor, also his wife, who finds um, love letters back and forth and tells FDR, hey, look, if you want a divorce, I'll give you a divorce. You can do it with her. So... You know, FDR basically says, you know, um, I'm not going to disgrace my family name and my political career with a divorce, and I'm not going to have this scandal happen on my watch. So it, that was the pivotal point in their marriage. They basically became a, a marriage of convenience. They went their separate ways. So when he dies, um, April 12, 1945, in Warren Springs, Georgia, she's nowhere to be found. Um, who is to be found is um, Lucy, Lucy Mercer. He, he swore that he wouldn't carry on a fair with but did anyway. One of those things. Um, so it's an interesting, interesting little plot that uh, that weaves through the FDR White House. Right. Um, now, who- there have been there have been many things uh, said about FDR's death. One person, actually, two doctors wrote a book claiming that he had died of cancer and said that there was a wart over his eye that was. Uh, was causing problems that had grown into his brain and, and so forth. And I always say that, you know, I've seen people die from cancer, unfortunately. I've never seen them go from bad to worse and bad to worse and good again and bad to worse. Usually they just drift off and die. Um, I've never seen anybody with cancer end up uh, bipolaring back and forth from a vibrant health to death door and all of these crazy things. So um, I think you'll find my book to be a little bit different. And I try and back it up as much as possible because it is a hot button top. Sure. I want to talk another about another woman uh, that was at Warm Springs, at the Little White House in Warm Springs on April 12th, 1945. Who was Elizabeth Shumatov? Oh, boy. Uh, Elizabeth Shumatov is a very interesting woman. And I got a lot of information on her from the book that she published. She was... Uh, if you've ever seen her paintings or her artwork, you have to. You have to Google it. This is probably one of the most incredible painting uh, you know, painters I've ever seen. And uh, she was a she was a defected Russian. Her and her husband Leo came to this country and lived in multiple locations around Long Island in that era of uh, New York State. And um, she was an Avonoff. Her parents were high-ranking in the in the Russian government. She defected again, again, like I said, with my with her husband Leo, who was quote unquote on a mission, according to her book, but she never quite says what this mission is. So he goes on to work for the um, Sigorsky Aviation Company as a business manager with no business experience. Sigorsky also a Russian. She ends up being um, a, a painter who travels the the country painting for all of the people that can't stand Roosevelt, all of the garden club from the DuPonts to the to the Hiltons, and painting their portraits and, and so forth. So she was at Warm Springs, Georgia, with her photographer, 
um, Nicholas uh, Kubikinski in front of the president when he dies. So Nicholas Kubikinski, I know I have to get boring, I'm sorry, bear with me. There's a good ending here, I promise. Nicholas Kubikinski, that was the name, he was also a defected Russian. That was his, his naturalization papers were Kubikinski. It was changed to Cobbins, and it was later changed to Nicholas Robbins. He was her photographer, snapping stills of the president so she could work late at night and not keep the president tied up for with her time. So these are two Russian plants painting FDR in a room alone with him when the man dies. So is it is it possible then that, that Nicholas Robbins, as he was then known, or the the portrait painter, Elizabeth Shumatov, were the ones administering the poison? Uh, it's entirely possible. I'm not going to give the ending of the book away, but yeah, you're not far off. Um, you know, there's no way, and we have to back up a second. We have to put ourselves cast in this time period of the Waltons, okay? There's no way that Secret Service is going to verify Nicholas Robbins, who's on his third alias. Um, they were just trusted friends uh, from Elizabeth, from Lucy Mercer and Missy Lehan to come paint this, this president. There's no way they were being verified uh, or uh, checked out by Secret Service. It would have been impossible. So we were a little more naive at the time. You know, not like today. Today, it wouldn't matter who you are if you're on the president. You have to get checked out. So it was an entire. It was very possible that, um, well, very probable actually, that he was, you know, he was being uh, uh, dosed with something to, uh, to to murder him by those two people. But and as you point out, Elizabeth Shumatov was also painting portraits of you know a who's who of America's elite. Uh, many of whom have had absolute disdain for Roosevelt and his, his policies, which were costing them a, a fortune. Oh, he was costing, he was costing the money people in, in the Garden Club of America millions and millions of dollars. Any one of the, and she was with their, she was within their, uh, their, um, their company within the 12 months prior to Roosevelt's death. And again, I'll go down the list, the DuPonts, Eastman Kodak, uh, Harvey Firestone, Henry Ford, Carnegie Steel, uh, the Heinz family, the Hilton family, the Mellon family, um, Robert Woodruff of Coca-Cola. Any one of these people would have slipped her money to poison the president just because it was in their best interest. He was he was absolutely crippling their businesses. And now they so had he, someone who had open it, and free access to the president. Exactly. So in my book, in all of my books, I lay out, Motive means an opportunity. I see to the suspects, figure out who they'll be, and I screen them through motive means an opportunity um, in this investigation to come out with the person who murdered this murdered uh, the subject matter. The subject, and in, in this case, it happens to be FDR. So you know, as the end of the war is coming, you know, Stalin is buddies with FDR, or so FDR thinks. FDR is proposing the four policemen to the world. Uh, you know, China, the United States, Great Britain, and the Soviet Union. Stalin has to be one of the biggest megalomaniacs in history. He doesn't want to share the world with FDR. He wants to rule the world. He's not going to play the game with FDR. 
So, you know, we have to dig into Stalin, and my book does a really good job of doing that, to understand how this happened. Um, Stalin murdered both of his wives because they knew too much. Stalin murdered his own doctor because he knew too much. He murdered uh, about a million, million and a half of his own countrymen for something to do. He was probably, I mean, if you look up megalomaniac in the dictionary, there should be a picture of Joseph Stalin there. I mean, this guy was an absolute murdering mental case. So he wanted, he wanted, he being Stalin, he wanted FDR out of the way at the end of the war. He wanted to deal with Harry Truman. Apparently he didn't know Harry Truman very well, but he knew that he was uh, a political newcomer. He wasn't going to be as shrewd. FDR was a shrewd customer, and he was a good negotiator. And Boy, did he and, read uh, Truman wrong. <laughs> did he underestimate oh Truman? Listen, uh, Stephen, we'll take a, a time out. When we come back, I want to talk to you about another central figure in this plot. Harry Hopkins, one of FDR's closest advisors. Could he be a suspect? Back with more of The Conspiracy Show, along with Steve Ubaney, who murdered FDR. Stay with us. Do you want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To get the truth, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Loose lips sink ships. And sometimes, corporations. Got something to say? Call Richard Serrett now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Steve Ubaney is with us for the full two hours. Who Murdered FDR? This is volume two in his Who Murdered book series. Who murdered FDR? The true story they don't want you to know. And uh, as Steve has uh, laid out the uh, the case, uh, Roosevelt was slowly poisoned. Um, Harry Hopkins, one of his closest advisors. Let's talk about him. How how close was Hopkins to Stalin? Before we get to that, Richard, I just want to tell everybody: if you want to order this book, don't go to Amazon and order this book. Go to my website. Order a book. Go to whomurderedbooks.com. Buy it there. It's much cheaper, and I'll be able to get you a copy out. And, you know, we're coming into the holiday season here. I don't know where in the world you can get somebody off your Christmas list for 16 bucks. So it might be good (laughs) to pick up a couple copies. Uh, They're also available on ebook and audiobook everywhere. But go to whomurderedbooks.com. I'm currently butting heads with Amazon. So I just wanted to get that out there. As far as Harry Hopkins is concerned, Harry Hopkins is probably one of the most important one of the most important people in uh, the World War II era that no one knows about. Harry Hopkins was uh, <laughs> um, he was because FDR couldn't travel because of the wheelchair and the leg braces. He needed someone to go overseas with him and go meet with Stalin and other other dignitaries in other countries and be his representative. And Harry Hopkins was that person. 
Um, Harry Hopkins came to know FDR through the Communist Party of the United States of America, the CPUSA. And um, they're housed in the middle of New York City on uh, 253rd West, um, 23rd Street, actually, in New York City. He was friends with Henrietta Nesbitt, who was the White House cook, and Eleanor Roosevelt. So they met through this connection, and he ended up being involved, very involved, with um, just about everything uh, in the New Deal. As a matter of fact, he, he was one of the architects of the New Deal. So he was uh, he was quite lived at the White House. FDR wouldn't let him leave. <laughs> he was he was quite influential to FDR, and he was uh, he was definitely running around the, the world um, on uh, on FDR's behalf. So he was a very interesting and pivotal figure in history that no one seems to know about. He was so powerful, you describe him as a co-president. Absolutely. And it seemed like Harry Hopkins was to FDR what um, Edwin House was to Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson, of course, was FDR's mentor um, coming through the, uh, the ranks, made him assistant secretary of the Navy, his quote-unquote um, alter ego was Edwin Mundell House, who started the Communist Party in the United States of America. So FDR, Woodrow Wilson had his uh, right-hand man, and FDR certainly had his, which was Harry Hopkins. So um, very interesting stuff. He also started the Lend-Lease program, um, which was basically an American program to defeat the Axis by distributing oil and other materials by way of the U.K., China, and the Soviet Union. Eventually went to France and all the other allied nations. And they basically did, you know, it included warships and planes and other weaponry. So it was very interesting the role that Harry Hopkins had with uh, within the FDR White House, the long-standing FDR White House. Uh, you, you write that he, it was discovered decades later that he was a Soviet spy and operative. Uh, what did you find? Yes, absolutely. Um, there's two KGB defectors, um, Oleg Kovacinski, and I am not going to even turn out, pr- try to pronounce this man's name. Uh, <laughs> it's just a Russian gentleman, because there's no way I'm going to pronounce this one. I'm looking at it for the first name. They both identified Harry Hopkins as the mysterious, quote-unquote, Agent 19, who was contacting the Soviet Union um, with uh, information on the Manhattan Project and the Bonona Project. So he was definitely a plant for Stalin. He was definitely <laughs> he was definitely up to no good within the government. But um, back then, you know, things were a little different. Now, was Hopkins present at Warm Springs on April 12, 1945? Harry Hopkins was not at Warm Springs. But he could have given the order to somebody, whether it was uh, whether it was uh, Elizabeth Shumatov, the artist, or or Nicholas uh, Robbins, the the photographer, also a Soviet. I mean, is it is it possible that 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 Harry Hopkins, acting on orders from Stalin, may have directed someone to slip Roosevelt the poison? Well, I, I would say it's not only um, possible; it's quite probable. He was really baked in the cake of the, of the Roosevelt White House. Um, he was the eighth Secretary of Commerce. He was, was one of his closest advisors. He was the architect of the New, Geo, the New Deal and many relief programs. He was his chief diplomatic advisor during World War II to 
um, all of the communist com- uh, countries. Uh, he definitely was. He definitely could have given that order to the other political operatives. I believe that he was working in and around the White House with a secret purpose that you know, they <laughs> FDR was basically being poisoned from within and without within the White House for a reason. And I think that that was. Uh, it was later discovered to be a Soviet operative. So I would say it's beyond possible. I would say it's quite probable. So let's um, let's talk about the last few days of Roosevelt's life. He 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 goes to Warm Springs as he often did to sort of recover and rest up. Uh, this is in uh, Georgia, and this is on the eve of him delivering a, a speech, which is going to open up the the United Nations. So. Let's just talk about what what happens in the in the final days of Roosevelt's life in in Warm Springs, and who's present. I'm sorry, Richard. We have a terrible connection. You broke up one more time, please. All right. Let's let's talk about the last days of Roosevelt's life in Warm Springs. This is he goes there to rest up on the eve of delivering a speech at the at the sort of the it's an inaugural address of this new institution called the United Nations. The United Nations is definitely something that Stalin didn't want. But yes, Roosevelt had, you know, he had a lot on his plate. Coming to the end of the war, trying to figure out the post-war world in a way where no one would have the upper hand, again, something that Stalin didn't want. And he is entertaining at the White House. So here he has, um, (laughs) he has, (laughs) (laughs) he has, all of his favorite people at the White House, uh, the little White House in Warm Springs, Georgia, where he's working on the papers. He's having his portrait painted. He's having his love interest there. He's got a couple of Secret Service guys there. Um, he has uh, his favorite cook, because the cook at the White House was terrible. I mean, how good could the food be if you're being poisoned? So he has his favorite cook making his favorite his favorite stew, and he is making himself as comfortable as possible, working through these enormous tasks for a man who is virtually half dead. So the night before, actually a couple nights before, he is eating, believe it or not, Stalin's caviar, drinking Stalin's vodka, which Stalin had given to him, which I just can't believe that, um, you know, <laughs> he actually... FDR had actually admitted, if you read my book, he actually had, uh, admitted to believing that he poisoned his wife. Why this man would be, would be eating his caviar is completely beyond me, but he is. So this is what they're doing um, in the day or two preceding the president's death. He has a barbecue he's going to attend to, you know, doing a couple social things. He's trying to rest as much as possible, and his doctor is checking his... Uh, his blood pressure, you know, almost almost every 15 minutes. And, you know, he's having problems getting his health in order. So this were the last couple days of, uh, of FDR's life. And, of course, the, the famous uh, portrait that Shumatov was working on remained unfinished because, obviously, he died in the midst of that. Uh, you, you have a, a, the last photograph taken of Roosevelt the day before he died. And uh, so what's happening uh, around lunch on April the 12th? He is doing, quote-unquote, doing his laundry. And what that means is opening his mail and he has papers strewn all over all the tables and all the chairs. 
and he's trying to go through the paperwork and, and uh, you know, go through his correspondences. And he has one of his favorite valets there, um, Arthur Prettyman. Uh, it was his personal valet because the president is crippled. So Mr. Prettyman bathes him, clothes him. He has him there helping him with his laundry and answering his correspondences. And he has about 15 or 20 more minutes to work, and he advises the, um, you know, the, the, the artist and her photographer that they're going to have to start wrapping things up. Um, he had just finished lunch. He had just finished something to drink. And he's dead. Very interesting timing. What were his last and words? Do we know? I'm sorry? What were his last words? Do we know? Uh, he clutched the back of his head, according to multiple sources, and said, I have a terrific headache. So, uh, when we talk about poisoning of opposition leaders, I know people tend to roll their eyes because they think that this is, um, they think this is, I don't know, completely outlandish or something. But, you know, in my book, I actually go back and I give the whole poisoning of opposition leaders that started in 1331 when it was started. Um, uh, really started to be used as uh, as a form of weaponry. Everyone from Rasputin to the Apostle John and the, the Apostle John in the Bible had been poisoned. And of course, political poisonings peaked during the Italian Renaissance in the 14th century. So, even today, uh, presidents and high dignitaries have food tasters. And every president since the since the 1800s has used a similar method. Um, some of the people, uh, the Roman Emperor Claudius, Napoleon, Mark Antony, Cleopatra, Queen Elizabeth, Lincoln, all of these people had food tasters. And some of the people even used dogs and military prisoners and even monkeys <laughs> to test their food. So this is, this is a real concern. As a matter of fact, in 1993, the 8th Turkey's eighth president was poisoned drinking a glass of lemonade at the Bulgarian embassy. So that's as early as his recent memory is 1993. So, I mean, this is definitely a concern. Even today, uh, modern U.S. presidents have an entire team called the Presidential Food Safety Team to set up a secure zone where the president and the first family can eat um, within the White House without complication. And, of course, when they travel outside of the White House, then they go back to other, other things to make the, to make the uh, you know, the, the dignitary as, um, as safe as possible. Traveling, um, Reagan, both Bushes, President Obama, President Clinton, they've all used food tasters. So this is really, when we talk about poisoning a president, this is not an outlandish thing. I mean, this is, this is a real thing. I mean, this is a real concern. So, and we had people, <laughs> and one guy get a hold of me and said, you know, it seems pretty far-fetched. And it wasn't that far-fetched. When, um, you know, when all of the backdrop is, that is going on, I think that the American public might be a little naive. But um, poor Roosevelt found this, out, found this out the hard way, and they could not wait to get this guy buried. It was 69 hours from death to travel to grave. That's it. They couldn't get him in the ground fast enough. Was there an autopsy? And there was no autopsy. There was no embalming. So, you know, the kicker of the whole thing is that the rumor is swirling around Georgia and around Washington, D.C. for a decade after 
better than a decade after. And it got to the point where Eleanor Roosevelt got so tired of hearing this, she commissioned a private investigator to look into the, the, you know, what was going on. So this private investigator gets a hold of, uh, you know, the powers that be in the White House and said he wants the president's medical records. The medical records were stolen from a locked file at Bethesda. Four people had those keys in the whole country. So if there's nothing to hide, why hide it? Did you say Bethesda? Bethesda, yep. Bethesda Naval Hospital. Wow. Yep. Magical Bethesda, where there all the go. cool stuff happens. 18 years later, it would, uh, it would figure again in the death of a president. Go yep. figure, Bethesda. Absolutely. So what about rumors that Roosevelt's body had turned black shortly after his death? You know, I had read that, but there was no, I could, not, I'll tell you what, nothing would surprise me at this point after uncovering what I uncovered. So, but I didn't that, put it in my book because I couldn't verify it. But would that be consistent with poisoning? I believe that it would be. What happened? Course, I'm, no medical, I'm no medical expert, right. but I've talked to a forensic pathologist and three doctors about this, and they believe that it would be consistent with poisoning. Again, I have no, I have no, I have no way to verify that, so I didn't put it in my book. But it would not surprise me at all. What happened to Shumatov and uh, her photographer, the other Russian, immediately after Roosevelt died? Were they questioned? They went on a car excursion with Lucy Mercer across country, trying to get as far away from there as possible. To my knowledge, they were not questioned. Um, I think that they did have attention to them. You know, I mean, I think that they were they were questioned, but they certainly weren't questioned under oath as uh, any sort of suspects or anything like that. I just believe that, you know, they were questioned as to, you know, what happened, what did you see sort of thing. And I believe that was by the news media, no law enforcement agency questioned them. Now, we have two Russians in close personal contact with the president. They flee seemingly, immediately after his death, and no one thinks that maybe they should be apprehended or at least detained or questioned. That's rather odd. That's very odd. And again, this is, in Elizabeth Shumatov's book, she goes into this at length. Um, the driver of the car is her photographer, um, Nicholas uh, Cobbins or Kubikinski. I don't exactly know what name he was going by at that time. I believe it was I believe it was Robbins at that point. He had many three names. So Nicholas Robbins is the driver. Uh, Lucy Mercer is in the car, and Elizabeth Shumatov is in the car, and they're trying as hard as fast as possible to get out of there. And they end up going across country, and you know, hearing the the news, uh, you know, on radio and wherever they stopped for gas and so forth. Extremely odd. Should never have happened. They should have been questioned. Um, they should have at least been persons of interest. They are in my book, I'll tell you that. Um, both of them are persons of interest and suspects in my book, and they, they well should have been. But back in the time period of the war, I think we may have been a little naive. You know, you're dealing with, you know, the, the 1940s and the 1940s. You know, we were a little bit different as a society back then, and we probably didn't want to believe that such a thing was possible or probable. So we right. were not questioned or detained. All right, Stephen, we'll take another time out. Who murdered FDR? The true story they don't want you to know. 
questions, comments, 416-360-0740, toll free, 1-866-740-4740. Big Brother is listening, and so are you, to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Peering into the shadows where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Now, this is a short uh, segment, uh, Stephen. We'll uh, chat a little bit. We'll take another time out, and then we'll, uh, we'll finish up with a longer segment. But uh, I'm trying to understand why or how it would benefit. I mean, we've, you've alluded to it, but how it would benefit uh, Stalin to have Roosevelt out of the way if Roosevelt was a fan of Stalin. Why would he feel the need to get rid of Roosevelt. Why wouldn't he... Uh, I mean, he had basically infiltrated the United States to such an extent, it seemed like he had everything going his way with Roosevelt in power. Well, <laughs> Roosevelt, uh, Roosevelt might have been a fan of Stalin, but nobody really knew Stalin. Um, and he was, again, towards the end of the war, he, uh, you know... Stalin had his eye on the post-war world the entire time. That was one of the reasons why he was after us to open up the other front in the D-Day invasion. He was after us, you know, to start another front, and he kept pounding and pounding. He said, you know, you know we, need to, we need to open up another front so we can get behind Hitler so we can catch him between. Stalin didn't need that. That was a trick to see how powerful and what kind of a military, uh, military presence that we could generate. So the entire time that this is going on, this this conflict, this war is going on, Stalin has got his eye on, on China, and he's got his eye on them infiltrating and taking over America. Uh, Stalin, is, is he's striving for world domination. In the same way that he dominated Russia, he had his eye on dominating the world. So he didn't have time for anybody in the United States who was going to stand in his way. So, um, again... Uh, Roosevelt wanted the four policemen of the world towards the end of the war, so something like this never happened again. He wanted Russia, the Soviet Union, Great Britain, and China. None of that <laughs> had any, uh, was, what, uh, was what Stalin wanted. He didn't want to divide the world with FDR. He wanted to rule the world in the same way that he ruled Russia. I mean, he knocked off everyone that was in his way politically. I mean, if you read, it will make more sense when you read the read my book. When you start dealing with uh, what Stalin, what Stalin really is, and what lengths he went to rule his country, uh, he was he was uh, one of the first members of the Politburo. Oh, sorry, I'm sorry, no, one of the first members of the Politburo, and he managed um, the Bolshevik Revolution with six revolutionaries, and he ended up killing all of them and knocking them all off to become, you know, the party's, the party's leader. And even Lenin started to realize towards the end of his life what a hideous monster this was. Um, Lenin wrote in his will, 
quote, Comrade Stalin is too rude, too dangerous, remove him. Uh, those in, uh, after Roosevelt's death, they used to pick on Stalin. They used to call him Comrade Filing Guard, Pen Pusher, the Gray Blur. They didn't think he was any, he was any uh, threat to him at all. One by one, they all met their demise, including both of his wives. Anyone who stood in Stalin's way got murdered. So after FDR gets murdered, Stalin sends representatives from Russia to check and make sure that he's really dead. I mean, he was quite a paranoid goofball. So it spelled out very well, very well in my, uh, very well in my book as to why he needed FDR out of the way. You make the point in your book that had Roosevelt lived, uh, and he would have then been president until at least 1948, and who knows, he could have, he could have won again, um, because there were no term limits. You make the point, had Roosevelt lived, there would not have been a Cold War. Explain. In my opinion, there probably wouldn't have been. You know, all total, there were 87 conflicts related to the Cold War. And, you know, ending in... Uh, in 1991, Soviet coup d'etat. I, I don't believe that would have happened because uh, I believe that Stalin had met his mental match with Roosevelt. And I think that he would have kept uh, Stalin in check all the way around the globe. And, um, and I think that, that was the real reason why um, Truman uh, started the Marshall Plan. And it was to uh, it was to help rebuild the the European economies, uh, primarily Poland and Germany and their neighbors, to keep them out of you know falling into the Soviet hands. So I don't believe that. In my opinion, no. I think that uh, I think that FDR would have been a step or two ahead of Stalin. I don't believe that that would have happened uh, the way it did. And I think Stalin basically felt the same way. He know he knew towards the end of the war that that uh, FDR needed to go. What was the most surprising piece of evidence? The most surprising document you uncovered while researching this book? I think it would have to be a tie. I think it would be the level at which um. FDR and Eleanor were involved in the Communist Party, the same Communist Party that was funded by Stalin in New York City to overthrow the government. I think that that would be a tie right along with President Roosevelt full well knowing that um, Pearl Harbor had to happen. And, you know, when the documents came out, you know, I, it just affirmed what I, what I had already known. So that was pretty shocking. Another thing that was shocking to me was Germany. Germany, just like Japan, Japan is an oil debtor nation. Germany is a food debtor nation. And one of the things they tried to do to get hit, to break Hitler was put a blockade around the country and starve him out. So, you know, Hitler had to make a decision. Do I feed my soldiers or do I feed my prisoners? Well, obviously, he fed his soldiers. So this is why you see all these emaciated pictures of these poor Jews and other prisoners who are basically skin and bone. Um, you know, not that Hitler would have taken great care of them, but, you know, he needed to divide his rations accordingly. 
And I think in a roundabout way, we were kind of responsible for that. That was also shocking. You know, the other side of history, don't look at it too hard because the other side of history hurts a little. All right. um, You know, to the victor go the spoils. Okay, Stephen, stay put. One last go around. Who murdered FDR? The true story they don't want you to know. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. PIN numbers, passcodes, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, here's two more numbers. 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Another curious aspect of of this whole uh, case is Eleanor Roosevelt and the massive FBI files on her. They, They were on her case for like 40 years starting in 1924 why was the fbi uh i don't know monitoring surveilling eleanor roosevelt as early as 1924 you know richard that's a, I, I don't have that answer for you i was shocked myself when i looked at the, the, this three drawer filing cabinet just loaded with um with documentation that they had been investigating her for such a time Possibly they thought she was a double agent. I don't have any idea, but it, it didn't. It didn't make sense to me then, and it doesn't make sense to me now. I mean, it, in the interest of national security, I understand why when you are connecting yourself with Stalin and communists, and Stalin is sponsoring the CPUSA in New York City to overthrow the government, I can understand why that would happen. I don't know why it'd be happening as early as, as uh, the date that you suggested. That, that's a new one on me. But but what I mean, aside from uncovering the fact that she was a communist sympathizer, what else did they find uh, about her? What else did you find in those in those FBI files? You know, I glanced over them for her, but my investigation really wasn't into her. It was basically um, I spent maybe half an hour going through them. Basically, what I saw was um, wiretaps of her discussing. Uh, her political leanings and what she wanted to do with the country, um, with uh, with FDR, with people who you know the government was uh, an interest in national security. They were watching. That's basically what I saw. Some of it was ridiculous. Some of it was just rumor and innuendo. Some of it was coincidence. Some of it was hard crunching investigative work. There are uh, you you couldn't re reprint these letters. You didn't have permission to reprint the the photographs of these a particular a couple of particular letters uh, in the book. But they had to do with something about scolding. She was scolding somebody uh, for ordering food for the president outside of the White House. What was what was behind? Henrietta Nesbitt was the White House cook. And I use the name, the word cook loosely. She was a horrific, horrid cook. 
and the only reason she kept her job is that she was such good friends with uh, with Eleanor. FDR would have fired her long ago, and uh, if he did, he probably would have been in much better health uh, because her her food is horrific. Um, there's one part of my book where um, Hemingway is visiting the White House, and he describes the meal as rubber chicken and rainwater soup and all of this, this horrid, horrid food. And um, there, there's a time where, again, in the interest of national security, you're only allowed to get food from certain locations. And there are approved locations that food is supposed to come from. There was a time when she's battling back and forth with uh, with the president. You know, he was she was making the same dish over and over and over again, and she wanted to start. Well, she started to get food food outside of her approved places, and she got her hands slapped for it. And I wanted to put that in my book. I wanted to uh, take a picture of that and put it in there because I thought it was very interesting. At the same time, when Roosevelt was getting so sick, she was changing where she was getting the food from. So I was trying to get a picture or a photo of that and put that in my book, but they wouldn't. Uh, they wouldn't allow that to happen, which I thought was a little bit odd because they didn't. They didn't really restrict me on doing anything else. You know, the documents. Just you get a little bit of a thrill. You know, when you're holding top-secret documents in your hand from World War II. Well, this, um, is, this is interesting because my understanding from your book is that, that Nesbitt was very close and very sympathetic to Eleanor Roosevelt. Eleanor Roosevelt and, and FDR were living totally separate lives at this point because of his infidelity. Uh, now, all of a sudden, Mrs. Nesbitt is sourcing food from outside approved sources is the suggestion then possibly that Nesbitt is involved in the poisoning of FDR? It's entirely possible. I'm not going to give my book away, but I'll tell you that she is a suspect when I screen people through motive, means, and opportunity. She, her name does come up multiple times. Um, I also find it interesting that when FDR's medical records are, records are stolen from a locked file in Bethesda. Four people had those keys. Um, and I know I just went on a tangent, but I never finished discussing this, and I think it's worth mentioning. Four people had those keys in Washington. One of those, the people who had the keys, was um, Vice Admiral Ross P. McIntyre, uh, our, president's, our president's doctor, the same person who, in 1946 wrote the book entitled The White House Physician. So I believe those they were stolen to cover up what happened to him and also help him write this book. The book is actually it's on Amazon with a whopping one-star review. <laughs> um, but, but it's a hardcover book. Uh, came out in 1946, which is just, you know, uh, a few months after, uh, after uh, um, our president died. So I think it's pretty obvious who... Uh, who got those? Who got those um, records and, and what happened to them? Do you think it's very that... interesting? History sometimes is, and I know people hate history because it's boring. But if you look at it objectively, it's really not that damn boring. You know, it's it's pretty interesting stuff. What happened to Harry Hopkins? Harry Hopkins eventually moved out of the White House, which was extremely odd. He had 
uh, I believe stomach cancer, and he moved out of the White House. He got remarried, and he died out of the White House. Why, why he left the White House when he was getting um, really good medical care, everyone in the White House, because FDR was getting care, the doctor was tending to all of them, why he would leave the White House while he was getting you know, top-notch care to run off and die somewhere else is a little bit interesting, but, you know, die he did. Do you think the CIA and the FBI know that Roosevelt was murdered? I, huh, I really don't know. It, you know, nothing would nothing would shock me. I'm not going to try and speak for the government, but you know, nothing nothing would shock me. How is this book being received? Because uh, this obviously, uh, you know, flies in the face of a lot of conventional wisdom. Well, you know, it. It bothers people because of, you know, people like the normalcy bias. They like to believe and repeat what they've been told for years and years and years and years. When someone like me comes along and reinvestigates things with deathbed confessions and, you know, books that have been published and, you know, uh, you know <laughs> new evidence and so forth, they love it and they hate it. They love it because, you know, they, they recognize the, the work that went into it and the book sells well. Um, but they also don't like it because I think that people like two and two to equal the four that they're used to. You know, they don't want two and two to equal five, equal four and a half. I don't think it. I think it really screws with their uh, with their normalcy bias. You know, so the book sells well. People like it. It's disturbing. You know, and oftentimes the truth is disturbing. And George Carlin said it best. I mean, you know, we they don't want a. a society of people capable of critical thinking it really doesn't suit their interests they meaning you know who are in power at the, at the top of our government you know they want people to you know be just smart enough to do some paperwork and keep the machinery going and just dumb enough not to realize how badly they're being screwed over and when someone like me comes along and reinvestigates things you know it's bothersome but it's fascinating and i think people are taking it that way who Murdered FDR? This is Volume 2. Uh, just give us a quick uh, summation of, of Volume 1, which is Who Murdered Elvis? Yep, a lot of people don't know that um, Elvis Presley was murdered. Um, Elvis died mysteriously days before he was supposed to turn state's evidence against the mob. And, you know, I, I befriended one of the people who was not only the investigator at Graceland, but he was the person at Elvis's autopsy. He was charged with the responsibility of checking Elvis's heart out um, and realized there was no evidence of a heart attack. And Elvis Presley was allergic to codeine, but there was no codeine found in his body because there was no anaphylaxis in his body, but it showed up in one and only one of the three toxicology reports. So that's another very interesting book, which we haven't talked about on this one. But I'm surprised no one's calling in. Richard, I'm, I'm surprised. I think maybe they're just shocked. People are shocked and uh, absolutely stunned by what they're hearing. For many, this is entirely well, new information. You know, most people you know, are like, well, he was sickly. He was 63. The life expectancy back then wasn't, you know, nearly what it is today. So it makes sense that, you know, he would, he would die of natural causes or a cerebral hemorrhage. hemorrhage. So this is very... Uh, yeah, it, it's... it's um, it's alarming to hear that, you know, we like truth, justice in the American way. Unfortunately, um, if truth was suddenly introduced in American society, the whole system would collapse. 
I don't think that history has told us the truth on many occasions, this being one of them. But do yourself a favor. Go out and buy this book for yourself. Go get it for a friend. Christmas and the other holidays are coming up. People are going to love to get this book if they like conspiracies or history or suspense or murder mysteries. Go to whomurderedbooks.com, all lowercase, one word, whomurderedbooks.com, and get yourself a copy, and I think you'll love it. Everybody, everybody seems to like this book. This is volume two. There's going to be six eventually. What's coming up next? Coming up next, well, the first one is Who Murdered Elvis, and then we have Who Murdered FDR, Volume 2. Volume 3 is Who Murdered Elvis, the fifth year anniversary, because more evidence came out. Um, I'm writing Who Murdered Princess Diana. I just started writing it earlier in this month. So um, look for that May, June of 2019. And I can tell you it's shaping up to be the best work I've ever done. So I think people are really going to love that book. Again, it's whomurderedbooks.com, whomurderedbooks.com. Steve, always a delight. Thank you so much for this. Thank you, Richard. It's always a pleasure. Steve Ubaney, whomurderedbooks.com. All right, we will be back next week with a brand new program. Thanks to Ian Robertson, Ryan White, Albert Vinzel, all of you for listening. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite, I'm coming home. Good night.